Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends at the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, I speak with Professor of Geography and recipient of the George Johnson Prize for Distinguished Achievement, Betsy Olson. In our conversation, Professor Olson speaks on her career as a scholar and leader currently chairing UNC's Geography Department. Well, Betsy, thanks so much for joining me today and talking a little bit about what you do at UNC as a as a geography professor. Yeah, thanks for um, speaking with me, Philip. And so part of, I mean, we've known each other for a few years as I've been working at the IEH and you've been involved with different programs and fellowships at the IEH, but today we're talking specifically, uh, well, we're going to talk about your work, but also because you're the recipient of the George Johnson Prize for Distinguished Achievement. So I just want to say, first of all, um, congratulations on that award. Thank you so much. I was, you know, genuinely shocked um, and very humbled. Uh, I realized the folks who come before me um, as recipients of this award and also, um, you know, who it honors and so on is just really, it really is kind of life achievement. So yeah, very honored. For those that don't know, just for those listening that don't know, if the the award is kind of like this lifetime achievement award for, uh, for lack of a better term, for UNC professors. So it's been set up every two years it's awarded. And to start out, as we do a lot of our interviews, can you just give uh, our listeners a general overview of your research and the scholarship you do? Yeah, of course. Um, so as you mentioned, Philip, I'm a geographer. Um, uh, here at UNC, I'm a professor of geography and of global studies. So those are the two kinds of um, intellectual worlds that I've occupied professionally over my career. And I came to um, UNC in 2012 from the University of Edinburgh, where I'd also been in the geography department. Um, and you know, my trainings from um, CU Boulder where I worked with an amazing group of geographers. And, um, and you know, my work, the beautiful thing about geography that I really love with it is that um, it's kind of internally interdisciplinary. So I've had this great opportunity to walk in relationship to the social sciences and the humanities throughout my career. And so as a geographer, um, I've studied uh, phenomena of religion and I've, looked at issues of development and inequality. And I've especially been interested in young people uh, and the ways in which young people kind of create and make the space in the world around them. So um, as my career progressed, I became increasingly interested in the ways that young people um, experience the um, material inequalities that are so marked in a lot of the places where I've lived and worked. And through that work, I began to pay closer attention to the ways in which young people engage in care and caregiving. So that's kind of marked my last couple of years of scholarship. And increasingly, I've turned to questions um, that surround uh, theoretically the ethics of care and then practically um, and empirically the ways in which young people do um, uh, provide care for families. So. My work has kind of progressed from working predominantly in Latin America 
always having an interest in themes of reproduction. How do we, how do we reproduce our societies? And now kind of really focus in on this issue of care and caregiving with young people. Great. Thank you. And so if, like you said, geography is really interdisciplinary, there's a lot of different angles, uh, just f- from my experience, seeing the different UNC professors that have studied and what they study out of that department. So how do, how do you see like your work in terms of caregiving and child caregivers? How does that relate to geography, aside from just concentrating on that particular region? Yeah, of course. I mean, what doesn't relate to geography? Of course, we always, you know, so um, my, my kind of intellectual background is um, in feminist theory, in addition to being interested in these themes of political economy, work and labor, um, and also kind of the histories of how we create our households. So, um, you know, within geography, we pay attention all the way from themes of the geo-humanities. Um, these are kind of more of the ways in which we experience things like landscape, straight through to kind of trying to explain those landscapes um, using biophysical science and modeling and um, tree ring science and so on. Um, so for, for me, my inspirations have always come from areas where people are trying to explain our kind of normative and moral lives. How do we make sense of the world around us and how do we determine um, priorities for ourselves, our communities, our societies, our higher education institutions and so on. And both how, um, how we make meaning out of our lives but also how we assess the, uh, the ways and the directions in which we want to move, like what is a better life, what is a flourishing life, and so on. You know, I've been especially inspired by folks who work within um, the broad field of ethics of care, of critical disability studies, of areas in which um, I think these pressing questions of, you know, what makes a good life become both personal and political, and that's you know, really kind of a a way in which feminist theorists approach the world is thinking about the personal as the political. Great. Thank you. One thing that was mentioned in in the little write-up on on when you were awarded this in November of 2020 mentions your uh, work as a leader at the university. And you've been part of the academic leadership program at the Institute for Arts and Humanities, but uh, you're also the chair of the geography department. And so I guess uh, what I'd like to ask is just what is your approach or philosophy to being a leader um, in a department, in an interdisciplinary department with managing all that, um, those personalities and duties and all that, all that stuff? Wow. Um, <laughs> what a good question. <laughs> when we were first starting this interview, I kind of tried to mime a cat, like, holding on to some kind of wall and climbing up it. I think that's probably how we all feel (laughs) during the pandemic. And so, you know, in part, um, my philosophy toward leadership is to kind of hold on to that and pay attention to it to ensure that I recognize and understand um, the incredibly hard work that everyone at UNC does in order to, um, you know, ensure that their students keep learning. to create, you know, innovative programs that help to support um, their colleagues. Uh, And, you know, at the same time to try and help clarify the importance of vision 
And, you know, for me, I'm always kind of struggling between how do we sort of keep things running from the day to day, being attentive and mindful of um, how I work with my colleagues. And you mentioned the academic leadership program, um, you know, this uh, a program that's run by the IAH that's just absolutely, you know, it's, it's life-changing really, I think for those of us who go through it because um, it allows us to sort of understand and explore um, these dimensions of leadership and how important they are in higher education. And it also allows us to, I think, try out a little bit what, you know, what is our personality as a leader and how do we effectively keep those things that are most important to us at the forefront. So for me as a leader, my philosophy really does draw quite a lot from the ethics of care. It acknowledges that we have this really deep interdependency with each other. And so um, it's impossible for me to talk about my own success without understanding the ways in which my students both rely on me as a successful academic and scholar and teacher and so on, but also how I rely on them. And so um, as I begin to recognize kind of that web of interdependency, it makes leadership a lot more complex, granted. Yeah. But I think that um, for me, it's been indispensable because it allows me also to, to always be mindful of those interdependencies. I never assume that, that my success uh, you know, is, is because of something necessarily that I'm doing. I, I understand and recognize um, the importance of the work of everyone around me. And I think about students that way as well. Um, and, you know, I've been grateful to my department, to the geography department, because I think they've embraced that same ethos um, in their practice. So, you know, we have these amazing award-winning professors and so on, um, and incredible phenomenal researchers and people who work diligently in and with their communities. And so I try to, um, hold a space for that kind of work and um, allow disagreements to take place without necessarily shutting us all down and to understand where those come from and still um, help to envision, you know, for the purpose of geography, a discipline that um, achieves uh, excellence through diversity and um, continues to push forward some of these things that, that we value here. It does, you know, when you when you put sort of ethics at the front of your leadership, it can, it can make things hard because, you know, you, you become, I think, um, aware of discrepancies uh, in decision-making and so on. But it's, I always said that I would only do this job if I could do it in the way, um, you know, in the way that I wanted to. That if I would continue being an academic as long as I could be myself, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. um, and you know, there's a lot of people that allow me to do that. The IAH is one space in particular that's allowed me to kind of preserve, um, you know, my own personality, my own values, and to understand how those can benefit the university and really North Carolina, um, you know, the communities that I work with. I'm gonna do a hypothetical situation here. So say I I am a um... A professor has been tapped to be a, a chair of a department. We'll just say humanities department. Is there, given from your experiences, you know, doing it your way or doing it the your style or being an academic the way you want to be an academic or be yourself? Uh, what's something that you could advise me as a new chair that maybe I wouldn't get from, 
you know, boilerplate, this is what you got to do as a new uh, leader of a department? There's a couple of things. I think that um, when you take on a position of leadership, you need to learn to authentically listen and to release the ego a little bit. So as academics, we like to be right. In fact, we're trained to be correct. <laughs> I mean, we, we have to be right. Um, if we're not right, our articles don't get accepted for publications, our research don't get funded and so on. I think that um, you know, there's this combination of, of learning to listen in a new way um, when you become a chair or a leader. Uh, you have to be able to hear what people are telling you, even if maybe they're not telling you exactly what they want to say. So um, sometimes you have to open up space to go back, to return to the questions, to return to the conversations. Um, and, you know, never send the first email that you write. <laughs> that would be my other <laughs> recommendation. So we have, again, in, um, in academics, I was wanting to be right. Uh, I think that we also, you know, we're human. We, um, we can be hurt um, by indications that things that we think we're fighting for very hard are not um, actually being interpreted as such, or, um, or maybe we make a decision and, and we've actually made the wrong decision and we've not consulted the right people, that we have to be able to understand that we will do things wrong as, as chairs and especially as a new chair. And it's not that wrong decision that will cause you trouble. I mean, it will. Um, but I think the most important thing is, again, to understand that fallibility and to know what your next response is. Um, and that's been invaluable for me. I think that's something that I learned actually from the academic leadership program was just the ability to pause, to um, accept where, where I've been in error to allow my colleagues also to be wrong in their, their first assessment. And then, um, you know, for all of us to kind of work together to understand really what is most important to us and move forward with those ideas. And then also, I mean, always, always, always shout, proclaim, um, advertise the value of the arts and humanities, um, you know, for our campus, for our communities, North Carolina, um, you know, I think that um, that the IAH provides such an important venue for doing that, and we have to we have to do it at the level of our departments as well. People don't understand oftentimes how important these things are for them until um, they begin to see their absence. Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking of like all the the mess that's going on like right now and has been going on for months, um, and then just like recently with like that, that shooting in Atlanta and you're just thinking of like all these little, it's just a compounding of, of misunderstandings and like, you know, it's just of like stereotypes of things that have been like persistent since, you know, 100, 150 years ago, like understandings of like Asians and Asian women and all that, you know, all that stuff compounds. And then you see things like this and it's like, well, if people have, the proper education to like critically unpack all that stuff. It doesn't become hardwired into your own brain. You know what I'm, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, we, but, you know, yeah. the, the amazing thing about arts and humanities is that it gives, it gives us different ways of thinking about things that 
maybe we have, you know, like in your everyday, you go through your life and you do your very best. Everyone does, right? <laughs> like you, right. you get up in the morning and you figure out what you got to do next. And you're, you, you know, you might be taking care of people who are far away. Um, you might be struggling yourself um, or you're watching your kids struggle or you're worried about your parents. And, and so we've become very consumed with these very proximate things. And I think, you know, when, when students come to, to UNC, it's a real privilege to be able to help them understand, you know, both their own situation, like their own context, how they, they sit within these relationships, these bigger processes, um, but also mm -hmm. to help them see things in a different way. I teach a class on cultural landscapes. And um, it's one of my favorite things to do as chair. I don't get to teach it as frequently as I normally do. But, you know, the first thing that I do is I just ask students, what do you see? And they, they don't even really know how to answer that question. They don't trust me. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, no, look around. What do you see? And, um, and as soon as they begin to describe things, all of a sudden they begin to see the world really differently. And the most exciting thing for them is this very first assignment where I say, okay, the next time you're walking from point A to point B, I want you to look for something that you've never seen before. And they're amazed, you know, they're like, well, there's this passageway that goes through this building that I've never seen before. <laughs> I walk by it every single multiple times. Um, and, you know, I think that that's, that's the beauty of the arts and humanities, whether we're talking about philosophy, um, whether we're, we're talking about art, performance art, is that it, it gives us that moment to sort of step back and see the world in a different way. And, you know, for, for my interest, because I'm, you know, dedicated to, to the development of better normative philosophy, better ways of thinking about how can we flourish, um, that stepping back in that moment to kind of coalesce what we care about. You know, I, I do think that that's something that's afforded by the arts and humanities that, that we don't always get in other places. So it, it allows us to feel strongly about the things that we care about as well. Right. Thank you. Um, I've got one more question, and this is something I ask almost all our guests. Uh, what's a book that changed your life? Well, I'm trying to think, you know, like I, I can actually, I can probably mark my life mm. by different books. And interestingly, <laughs> the book that changed my life is a book that I've never discovered the title of. <laughs> so when I was a really young child, and here's a shout out to our public libraries. Yeah. Um, I used to go and visit my grandma and grandpa in uh, San Diego, California. That's how we spent our summers. Mm. And um, my very favorite thing to do was on our second or third day to go to their public library. And we would, you know, it was, it was the whole summer ahead of you. And yeah. that experience of going to the library and being able to take anything off the shelf and being assured that you would have the time to read it. Um, you know, that was perhaps my favorite moment. So, um, uh, you know, I recall this one summer and I pulled a book off the shelf. And I, again, I've never been able to figure out the title uh, or the author, but it was um, this fantasy. And it was a, a young woman who went into kind of a fairyland. And mind you, you know, this is pre-Harry Potter. This is before yeah, these yeah, yeah. kinds of things were, were so commonly written. Um, and the description of the place was the most vivid landscape, I think, that I've ever read in a book. She had created this phenomenal world, and I can still remember 
these pages when the girl is kind of traveling down past these roots and and mushrooms and so on to to kind of access this entry point. And it was even, you know, more vivid for than some of the, you know, Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe and these other books that I'd been reading at the time. I could almost smell, um, you know, the ground around her. And so that book changed my life because it uh, heightened my sensitivity to that kind of thing. And I, I just mentioned to yeah. you that I teach a course on cultural landscapes and yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't even write as much about that kind of work. It's kind of the, it's, it's almost like my everyday hobby to mm -hmm. be this uh, <laughs> intense observer of uh, the most obvious things around me. So scent, smell, feel, how the ground feels beneath my feet is something that I, I'm attentive to every time I take a walk. I can tell you regionally how the ground feels underneath my feet from around different landscapes in Europe to Chapel Hill to the Southwest where, you know, where I grew up and it has this different kind of characteristic. So that book changed my life. It, it told me that, um, that paying attention to these kind of mundane details of our everyday life can be as exciting and evocative as, as other kinds of things that we experience. I wish I knew the name of it. Yeah, so yeah. If you can find the other, I'd love to read it again. <laughs> it's a <little> mystery. <laughs> well, Betsy, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and, and yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, of course, you're so welcome. Thanks for speaking with me, Philip. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.